The scripture reading today is from the book of Genesis. It's page 2 in the Pew Bible. We will read from Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7, and 14 through 21. The word of the Lord. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Over in chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to, to be desired to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Then over to verses 14 to 21 in chapter 3. <clears throat> the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. But to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The word of the Lord. Well, let's pray together as we go to God's word and take a closer look at this passage. Father, we do pray now that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We thank you that we can come to you knowing that uh, you accomplish all that you desire when your word is proclaimed. And we pray that you would do that now by your spirit and that we, we would know Jesus more this morning. And we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, well, as Darwin mentioned, we're picking up the second week, uh, second of four weeks, uh, on this general topic of the gospel and our work. Darwin spoke last week about the glory of work, that we are created to work. Looked at those early chapters of Genesis, and you see that God himself is a worker, and that we are created in his image, and we bear witness to him as we do our work in the world. So all of our work has this royal, kingly sort of feel to it. Because that's how God has created us. So whether you're a student, a stay-at-home mom, or you go to an office every day, whatever uh, your type of work is, that becomes an opportunity 
to do what you were made to do, which is to reflect God to the whole world. And so that, that, that is what we are called to do. That's what we're created to do. And as Darwin talked about, it is very spiritual work. And that's a huge, huge point for us to remember, that there's nothing more inherently God-honoring in the work of a pastor or a missionary than there is in one who's a school teacher or a welder or a home builder or a speech pathologist. So work is a glorious, God-like thing, a God-honoring, God-like thing. But if all that's true, and it is, right, then why is it that when you Google the question, why do I hate my job, you get 96 million hits? Not that I'm Googling that for myself. It was just for this purpose. I love my job. Here's, what you, here's the, the uh, type of articles you get that come up. 11 tips to cope with a job you hate. 10 things to do if you really, really hate your job. How to get out of bed when you hate your job. And my personal favorite Am I depressed or do I hate my job? (laughs) And the answer in that article was basically yes. (laughs) Um, Here's some statistics that that, uh, testify to this same thing. Uh, 77% of Americans hate their jobs. Uh, A recent poll found that Americans hate their jobs more today than than, than they have in the past 20 years. Fewer than half say they are satisfied with their current job. Less than half. 25% of employees say work is their main source of stress. 40% say their job is very or extremely stressful. So if there is such glory in our work, and if this is what we were created to do, then why are statistics like that true? If there's such glory in our work, then why do shows like The Office and movies like Office Space resonate with us so much? Why are they so popular? If there's such glory in work like that, then why is it that we are so tempted to live for our weekends and for our vacations and just to count the days until we can retire? Now, you might not have Googled that question, although I would guess some of you might have, (laughs) that you may have Googled that question. Everybody in here knows that there is something that's not right about our work, that there is frustration in our work that is so, so difficult. Whether it's Legos that your brothers keep breaking after you build them, not that we know anything about that in our house, or if it's actually just this grind of your corporate position that feels so often meaningless to you, where you dread Mondays because you don't want to go back to that job again. If work is so glorious, then why is it so hard? That's the question that we need to answer this morning. What happened? What happened to all that Darwin described last week from the early chapters of Genesis? The answer is that Genesis 3 happened. The fall happened. So instead of continuing in this beautiful relationship with God and with one another and with this world around them, ruling and reigning over creation and showing forth what God is like, The man and the woman instead rebelled against God. They turned their backs on God and they ate from this one tree that God said, don't eat from it. Enjoy this entire garden. Enjoy everything that I created. Eat of it. I command you to do that, to enjoy it and know that I'm the one who's given it to you. Just don't eat of this one. And of course, what they did is eat of that one. And when they did that, they plunged the world into this state of sin And this world into a state now of brokenness and corruption. And that 
is why you now sometimes hate your job. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. And that's the question that I want to ask this morning, is why do you sometimes hate your job? Um, Just beforehand, um, one of our elders said, why did you put the word sometimes in there? As in it should be, why do you hate your job? So here's why. You sometimes hate your job because our work has become painful, it has become oftentimes meaningless to us, and it has become idolatrous to us. And those are our three points this morning that we'll look at from this passage. So first, you sometimes hate your job because our work has now become painful. If you look back uh, to the text, you see this. You'll remember this initial call to Adam and Eve that, that, we, um, that we talked about last week was to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth. And then in Genesis 2, the man is placed in the garden and he's called to, to work and keep the garden, to cultivate it, to bring out its goodness and show forth what God is like as he does that. So that is the call to work. And now, the consequence... And the curse of sin is directed right at that call. So that is right where we now feel the effects of sin most profoundly, is in this particular call. If you look at this, you see it in verse 16. Remember, the man and the woman have been called to be fruitful and multiply. Well, this now has become painful. It says, in pain you shall bring forth children. And then verse 17, in the curse pronounced to Adam, it says, the ground is now cursed, such that now instead of fruit coming forth, which is what should have happened, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And that image of thorns and thistles is used in other parts of the Old Testament to to picture uh, nature as sort of something that is overcoming you. And you know what this is like if you've tried to keep a garden or something like that. You know that the weeds are relentless and there's no foolproof way to prevent them. And if you let them go, then they will overtake your garden. That's the sort of feel of these thorns and thistles coming forth. He says, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And that word for pain in verse 17 is the same word used to describe pain of childbearing in verse 16. That's what's happened to our work. And then verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So what's being said in these verses? Well, it's not that work is now, that work now requires effort when it didn't before. Work has always required effort. Adam and Eve were doing good work and they were putting forth effort in the garden. The difference, though, is that now, under the effects of sin, work has become hard. It's become toilsome and it's become painful in a way that it was not before. Things don't work out the way they're supposed to. Things don't go the way they should. The the land doesn't produce fruit like it should. So instead of all fruit, all the time, you get thorns and you get thistles coming back at you. Uh, When we were getting ready to sell our house in Indiana to move here, we did a whole bunch of painting in our house. We chose colors for the whole house, and I started in the kitchen. And so I started uh, painting this one wall of our kitchen, and Jeanette comes in, and she goes, huh, looks a little darker than than what I thought it was going to be. And I say, yeah, it does. You know, it's probably going to dry lighter. So uh, paint the whole kitchen, finish it up, and, uh, and it dries completely. And Jeanette comes in again and says, that's really quite a bit darker than what I thought it would be. And I go look at the can of paint, 
And of course, the person at Lowe's had given us the wrong color. Uh, And I don't want to talk about how maybe it should have been my responsibility to look at that and check on something. (laughs) But that's a picture. So we had to repaint the entire thing. Two coats because it was darker going to lighter. Uh, That's a picture of now of how our work has become toilsome. Things don't go the way they're supposed to. You put forth effort, but uh, you don't get the returns that you would expect. Our efforts don't produce the results we would hope for. We make mistakes. Other people make mistakes. Students, for example, you feel this when you study like crazy for a test, and you still don't get the grade that you think you should and that you need. And you feel like, there's nothing I could have done differently. I studied as hard as I could. The doctor feels this when he or she has done everything right in his or her power to save a patient's life, and yet that patient still dies. You might feel this even if you just work in a job that feels completely thankless. Mothers, you might feel this way often, where you, you, you don't get the time off. Uh, you, you, you have this unbelievably important yet extraordinarily difficult work to do And yet that job is so often a thankless job. That's not the way work is supposed to be. It's not supposed to have this painful, toilsome character to it. But it does now because of the fall. And it is incredibly important that we would understand this, though. Because if we don't understand that work is now painful and toilsome, we're going to be tempted to think that the problem... The, the, the problem with my work is not that it has this character of frustration, difficulty, and toil. The problem is that I'm in the wrong job. And so what I need to do is I need to find a job that actually fits who I am. And so we, we think then that I just need to go to the next job. The next job's going to be better than this. And it may be true that you do need to get out of the current job you're in. But... We've got to know that the next job is going to bring forth thorns and thistles in a different way. So the solution is not, I've got to find another job. And if we think that it is that, then we will be continually and constantly dissatisfied with our work. We'll bring expectations to it that are unrealistic, that will never be met before the new heavens and the new earth. Keller's got a great quote on this. He says, You should expect to be regularly frustrated in your work, even though you may be in exactly the right vocation. There will be a constant mix of glory and frustration to our work. That is what work is for us now. And some of us hate our jobs because we expect our jobs to be pain-free. We are setting ourselves up to be disappointed when we do that. So we've got to understand the toil of work. That work now under the curse is painful. That is the reality of the situation that we're in. We've got to recognize it. So we sometimes hate our jobs because our work is painful. Secondly, you sometimes hate your job because our work often feels meaningless. And this sort of flows from that first point. In some ways, it's connected to that that pain and that fruitlessness of our work. It goes something like this. If I put in all of this work into this project, if I study faithfully for this exam like crazy... And still, all that comes forth are these thorns and these thistles. Then what's the point? Why why am I doing this? Why should I do this? This feels pointless and meaningless to me. But 
This is also what's, uh, what's said in verse 19. This is, I think, a, a, an even more profound way that we could feel this meaninglessness. Verse 19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So what's happened is the original situation where Adam and Eve were created to rule and reign over all of creation, over the ground itself, has been flipped on its head. So now rather than ruling and reigning over the ground, the ground wins in the end. You return to dust because death is, our, is the inevitable outcome of our life. And it becomes unbelievably difficult to think about work being valuable and important when you know that you are going to die. And not one of us in here is going to be remembered in a hundred years. And our work won't be remembered either. And this is how the author of Ecclesiastes puts this. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool, yet he will be a master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So he's basically saying here, I'm going to do all this work. I'm putting forth all of this effort. But in the end, I'm just going to die and leave it to this guy who comes after me and who knows what he's going to do with it. And so in the end, he has this profound sense of vanity about his work. It feels unimportant and meaningless. There was a French philosopher, an existentialist philosopher named Albert Camus. He wrote this book uh, called The Myth of Sisyphus. And it's based on uh, this Greek mythology uh, of a Greek god named Sisyphus. And Sisyphus rebelled, the, the, the myth goes, he rebelled against these other Greek gods. And, and then he got shut down by these other gods. His rebellion didn't work. And so he's then sentenced to a life of rolling this huge boulder up a mountain, only to have it roll back down again. And then he has to do this over and over again for all eternity. And for some of us, that is the way our work feels that it has this sense of meaninglessness that is repetitive and the results don't come forth like you would hope that they would. It's as though you're pushing this boulder up a huge mountain only to see it come crashing down again. So the question then is, what do we do about this? Because it's really tempting to have to face that sort of sense of meaninglessness and think, I just need to do something that I'm passionate about. So again, we return to this solution of, I just need to find another job. That's, that's the thing. I've got to find something that, I, that I'm really excited about and passionate about. Then I would have a sense of meaning. So we kind of redouble our efforts to get every sort of bit of meaning out of our work and find something that we could do instead. But the other common response is that we begin living for our weekends. We start thinking, my job is pointless, so all I'm going to do now is live for my vacation and count the days until I retire. Work is just a necessary evil that I've got to endure in order to do what really matters and what I really love to do. But neither of those ways are the way the Bible responds to this. So the, the, the curse on our work is that it can feel meaningless. And that's the important word there. It feels meaningless. It's not meaningless, but it can feel that way. And ultimately, the, the ultimate solution to this, of course, 
is that what Jesus has done by his life and death and resurrection is transformed our view on work as those who are united to him. And Darwin's going to talk about that in a, in a rich way next week. But there's something even more basic in this passage that we need to see. And it's that work did not become bad in the curse. Work is not evil. Now, it, it, it is, it, it's under the effects of sin and under the curse of sin, but it is not itself the curse. Work is still good. Sin is parasitic. It takes something good and it twists it, misuses it, and perverts it. And it is critical that we would remember that as we think about our work. What you do, though it is under the curse, though it can feel meaningless, still has inherent dignity and value and worth because it is still what you were created to do. And that's the place that we've got to return to over and over again. Another way to say this is that we need to see our work like God sees it. And he looks down upon you doing your work and sees it as a beautiful, wonderfully glorious thing that shows forth what he is like in the world. Even in the midst of the toil, even in the midst of what can feel meaningless to us. Another way to think about this is uh, childbearing is under the curse as well. So you don't think, none of us question that, that having children is a good thing. But of course, you talk to parents, you say, yeah, childbearing is incredibly difficult in a lot of ways. It's difficult in a way that it would not have been before the fall. But it's still good. Work is the same way. Work is still inherently good, and yet it's under the curse. So work has become painful. It can feel meaningless. And finally, the, the third reason that we sometimes hate our jobs is because our work can become idolatrous. So th this isn't quite as explicit in the text as the others, but it's more an implication of Genesis 3 as a whole and what's actually happened here. So remember what's going on. God has told them, don't eat of this one tree. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the one tree from which I'm telling you, don't eat. And I'm telling you that because I love you. I'm telling you that because I can't be but good to you. I'm telling you that because this is the path of life. This is the way to flourish. Enjoy all these other things. Don't eat from this one. But what happened instead is that they put themselves, that is the man and the woman, put themselves in the place of God. And they doubted what he said. They said in the end, I actually don't believe you, God, that you, you are actually doing this for my good. I think instead, you're actually holding out on me. There's got to be something about eating from this tree that's actually going to bring us this knowledge that's going to make life better for us. You're holding out on me in some way, I think. So I'm going to go ahead and eat from this tree. I know better than you do. And so as they began doubting God's goodness, they started looking elsewhere for life meaning, and value. And that's what idolatry is. It's looking elsewhere for something that God alone can provide. It's when you take anything, and these are good things, taking anything good, and you raise it to an ultimate God-like level in your life. To where you begin looking to that thing to provide you your meaning, your value, your worth, your happiness, when only God can do that. It's taking something created and raising it up to the level of a creator. Another way to say this is that it becomes a functional God to you. And so, of course, we can and we do this all the time with our work. 
Work becomes an idol to us. Maybe more specifically, success in work becomes an idol to us. And I know that, that might seem a little, uh, little heady, a little conceptual, so I want to get more practical with that. Here's what this could look like. This could look like an unceasing, all-consuming drive to get to the top of your field. At all costs, you are going to be the best at your school. You're going to be the best in your company. You're going to get recognition from other companies in the community when they know that that guy can really sell real estate. You want to be the absolute best at all costs, and you're willing to do most anything to get there. This could feel like the immense pressure to be the perfect parent. The burden that you take upon yourself because you have staked your identity in how well your kids behave in church. How well they behave in school. It could show up as a sort of crippling anxiety that you feel to maintain your 4.0 GPA and to get into your number one school. This is just as easy for students to do. In all of these ways, we are staking our identity in our work. And maybe the, the, the most telltale sign, I mean, at least one of the most common, is that we are incessantly busy. And overworking and busyness has uh, it, it's gone from something that um, actually years ago uh, was not something to be admired to now a sort of badge of honor and something that's totally socially acceptable. So there's this great article a few years back in the New York Times called The Busyness Trap, and here's what the writer says about this. It says, Busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. That kind of hits us right where we live. And so... You get things like uh, Michael Scott interviewing for Jan's job on The Office who says things like, why don't I tell you what my greatest weaknesses are? I work too hard, I care too much, and sometimes I can be too invested in my job. And so th this comes as something that is totally socially acceptable, but it is devastating to us. And we do this because we think by our busyness, by our overwork, by our success in our job, we can actually begin to fix what is wrong with us. That's actually what's occurring in those moments. And if you look back to Genesis 3, the first thing that Adam and Eve do after they've eaten from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is take these, these uh, fig leaves and sew them together in order to hide from each other, and then they hide from God. What are they doing? They're attempting to fix what is deeply wrong within them. This sense of shame comes to them as they've eaten from this tree. They know that there is something wrong with them, and they're doing all they can to fix themselves. Success in work can become these proverbial fig leaves for us, where we try and cover our shame and fix what's wrong with us by being the best employee that we can be. And we just think, if I can get a little bit higher if I can get paid a little bit more, if I can get a little more recognition, then I'll stop feeling this sense of worthlessness within me. And the incessant thing about that is that it's never enough. You always have to have more, and it never, ever works. Success in school, success in work, cannot and will not save you. 
This is what we do with our work. We take it, we misuse it, we try and cover our shame with it. If you look back to verse 21, you'll see something that is profound and reassuring to us. God recognizes as He looks to this man and this woman who have just rebelled against Him, and He sees that their own efforts to fix themselves are insufficient. What He says in verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So these fig leaves don't work. You need something more. You need something, Adam and Eve, that only God can provide. And that's what God does in this moment. So one commentator said, God does for the man and the woman what they cannot do for themselves. These leaves won't work. You must have these garments of skin. And as many have pointed out, in order to have these garments of skin, there was already, in, in, in Genesis 3, some sort of sacrifice, some sort of death, in order to cover them. And of course, what that ultimately points to is the much greater sacrifice that comes to us in the person of Jesus. It points to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And this is what it says to you. Jesus alone can deal with that sense of worthlessness, that sense of meaninglessness that you're trying to cover up uh, your work with. Jesus alone is the one who can deal with that in a sufficient way that can provide you with the worth and the dignity and the value that you are looking for in your work. Your work can't save you, but Jesus can and He does. He alone can fix what is broken in you. He alone can mend what is torn in you. He alone can heal what is sick about you and I. And it's only when we find our life in Him that we then actually begin to experience redemption in the area of our work. It's this, kind of, it's this incredible uh, twist of events where you actually do begin enjoying your work. You do begin doing better work as you stop staking your identity in your work because you've begun looking to the one who alone can provide that for you, and that is Jesus. And this is what he offers to us, and Darwin's going to go into much more detail next week as to what this looks like and how the gospel connects to our work. But what we've got to see this week is that as you embrace this truth, that your ultimate worth and your ultimate value, your salvation, is found not in your work, but in Jesus, you can begin to enter into your work in a healthy, God-honoring, God-glorifying way that is impossible otherwise. That is the only way that we can live and work in this world under the curse. And Jesus offers that to us. Let me pray. Father, we thank You that Your Word is brutally honest with us about the effects of sin in the world and what our sin has done to our work and to this vocation that You've given to us. We thank You even more for the grace that You show immediately to Adam and Eve. Immediately after they've sinned, You show Yourself to be a God of grace and of kindness 
And we ourselves need that same grace and kindness. And thank you that you have shown us that in sending Jesus for us. We pray, Lord, that we would stake our identity and find our worth in him this morning and not in our work. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.